Welcome back to Following Noah Donist on my podcast. This week is episode 160, and we have finished Yumi and the Nightmare Painter. Paul, how are you? Great. I'm glad we got to the end. I'm really excited to talk about it with y'all. Elliot? I think I'm still recovering from the ending of this book. The, the whole second or last, the whole last quarter of this book was a roller coaster. Yeah. For sure. So I don't know if I've ever been truly faked out by the ending of a book where the end of this book has two epilogues because the first epilogue is not actually an epilogue. It's just the last chapter. It's the actual last chapter. And the second epilogue is the actual epilogue. So he, he really does sell the sad ending, which we'll get to in a little bit. And Hoyt even uh, Hoyt fakes out his audience saying, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I have to give you this sad ending as he's beginning the epilogue, which is the happy ending. So we'll we'll get into all that, but we're doing 38 through another epilogue of Yumi and the Nightmare Painter. Let's roll intro and we can discuss it. And the postscript. You forgot the postscript. We got to talk about that too. Ah, uh, yes, the postscript. Yeah. Is that really part of the book, though? Would you classify that as part of the book? Yes, because it... what else would it be classified as? The postscript. I mean, it's, well, yeah, it is the postscript, but like, it's in this book and only in this book kind of thing. Like, it is between the covers. But no, by definition, it is after the book, <laughs> the postscript. Yeah, it's, That's what it means. It's like, it's author notes, you know, it's sure. PS, uh-huh. you know? Yeah. Is that actually what PS means? Postscript, yes. Postscript. Well, I never thought about that, but <laughs> I guess that logically makes sense. You have learned something today, Paul. I did, I did. 100%. All right. So, last episode, we kind of stopped... In kind, in pretty much the only stopping point we could have stopped at in the, um, in, in the finale here, we set up Nicaro in front of the shroud, ready to defend against his the the hundred nightmares that are coming. Yumi has just recovered her memories, and that's where we pick up in chapter thirty-eight. I predicted last week that. Yumi would be able to get to the machine that's in the town um, without any issue because everybody is off assaulting um, Kilahito. Where's that? No, yeah, Kilahito. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. I was wrong. The four scholars are still here defending the machine or at least pretending to defend the sh- machine. The machine that's there is one of our fake out- we're going to be talking about a lot of fake outs in this episode there's yeah. there is a lot of a lot of bait and slide of, slide of hand in this book and a lot of it is revealed in this episode so one 
the machine that the spirits have asked us to stop is not the machine that we've been presented with for this the second half of this book um there is a big bad machine in i don't remember the name of the capital city but that's the machine we're supposed to be stopping so when yumi goes to destroy the machine she, she successfully does that but then it's revealed to us that the Nightmare Scholar guys don't actually care about that machine. They are tasked by the big machine in the capital to defend it. So what what did you guys think of, of this reveal in 38 and 39, I think? I was really happy about this, and I feel like it made a lot of sense. Okay. Because we knew that there was an outcry from the beginning of the book with these spirits asking for freedom and then we see later this this distinct like stop the machine you know and so it made sense with what the machine we were seeing was doing because our understanding is that it was trapping spirits but it seemed less harmful still like it didn't seem that bad you know like like it trapped a spirit a day kind of thing which is which is a decent amount you know mm-hmm. but it makes way more sense to have a much larger like calamity scale like big machine that is like impacting the shroud itself like like it's it has much larger implications that makes way more sense for this story i think in in a classic sander lynch scenario i guess um for it to be something much larger scale this this little twist ended up fitting kind of nicely that i made that had nothing to do with this machine or at least i didn't intend it to and then it just kind of sort of happened that way yeah this was this kind of got to where i was so terrified we were going to go which was some kind of Matrix style, the robots are farming the humans and turning them into electricity kind of thing. And that's kind of true. It's, I mean, it, it's pretty much, if, if you simplify things down to basic terms, that's pretty much what's happening. Yeah, you've got humans create machine. Machine turns around and, and feeds on humans and then creates this whole system where it controls everything including illusions that it creates for everyone we learned that so much of what we've been seeing was fake it was at the end of this i was trying to parse out like what was real and what was fake in all the different things that we that we saw It it was confusing but yeah i think this whole there's a big machine behind all of this was a i think it was a good direction for the story to go I have several thoughts on not only this, but multiple reveals that we get in this book, but they're not all confined to this episode. So next week when we do our book wrap-up, I think I'm going to talk about this more and in depth um, and kind of compare them all together. So I think I'll actually save some of my thoughts on some, some of these reveals and how I feel about them Till next week and i'll compare them all side by side and which ones worked for me and which ones didn't um but as as far as like a story mechanic i think it's it's good i think this is uh 
a, a fine way to take the story. Um, I just, I didn't see it coming, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I do really like the way that Yumi fights this machine, for for lack of a better um, term. She, it has an invis it has a investiture barrier up around it because it's been given the command by these engineers protect yourself and create energy or I, I think that's the or create um investiture I don't I don't remember what it, the command is so it does that it harvests the investiture from the things nearby which is people and it protects itself and so the the way Yumi actually ends up fighting this machine is by draining its investiture, attracting the spirits away from the machine to her, creating this master artwork piece, which I actually think I will go ahead and put up on the screen now. There's a really good artwork piece in the book of uh, Yumi and her hundreds of rock stacks that she's using to detract the spirits away from uh, the the machine, which I th I thought was a really cool way to um, uh, for, for a climax for this book. So I, I really enjoyed that. Real quickly, since we're talking about that that moment, I, I wanted to to chime in and say I loved I loved that scene where she just goes crazy with this ultimate masterpiece of rock stacking because of this the whole concept of like this ultimate master. Mm. We we learn, and I think we, this was hinted to us before with the whole memory deletion and and stuff like this. But we we learn in these chapters. One of our review, one of our many reveals, is that Yumi has been reliving the same day for seventeen hundred years. Yeah, seventeen hundred years. She has lived the exact same fake day. Well, like real action, but filled with illusions this this kind of created for her day just to keep control of her because she has so much investiture she's so strong the machine can't like forcibly control her so it has to create this cage of illusions to give her something to do so that she thinks she's in this world but because she's done that because she has relived the same day over and over and over where she does this rock stacking every day she has 1,700 years worth of training for multiple hours every single day. And because of that, and the muscle memory, Hoyd talks about this, the muscle memory that she builds up from that ridiculous number of hours. I should have calculated it, how many hours that would be. Assume like, you know, three hours each of those days times, I guess we don't know how many days are in a year. Hmm. Mm. Anyway, we could do a little guessing, but thousands, thousands and thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of hours training doing this. She is like the ultimate master. She's put so much time into this rock stacking that she's just like unmeasurably good at this. I thought that whole concept was just fascinating. I would uh, like to apologize for you to Yumi in my lack of faith in her abilities. In one of our art pieces, she stacks three bowls on top of each other, and I doubted her ability to be <laughs> able to balance that bowl. And uh, 
with 1700 years worth of experience i i bet it could be done that you could stack exactly three bulls on top of each other so i i, I recant and that is that is doable with that amount of skill i'm really glad that's you remembered that trevor that that i think that's hilarious so somebody go crunch the numbers but i'd be willing to guess that yumi has more hours spent stacking rocks than you or i will ever live in our whole lifetime Oh, easily yeah like like Likely. assume assume Makes that we sense. live to 100 every single hour that you and i are alive yumi has spent more than that just stacking rocks Ooh, another question she spends exactly 144 seconds underwater every day to summon the spirits in the pool how long has she been underwater in her entire life mm. that's a good we, we one need, we need to know to, we need roughly, to know how many days are in a year on this. Yeah, we do. Yeah, that's my that's my yes. question for Brandon this year. How many how many days are in a year on what what's the name of the planet? Kamashi. Oreo. No, yeah. we oh. we learned the name of the planet in the final epilogue. Yeah, that's right. Um, and that's very important. I want I want to know how many days are in a year for my calculations. Yes, to know if she spent more time underwater than I will be alive. Correct, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk about Painter. Painter is face-to-face -face with the Shroud at the end of last episode, and then kind of muses to himself, I guess I'm going to die here. I guess we're all going to die here. There's nothing I can do about it. And then he thinks, well... What would Yumi do in this situation? Yumi would go ask for somebody's help. She would go reach out to her community. She would go re reach out to society and ask for help. Um, something that Nicaro has maybe never done in his life is ask for help. Um, so he does that. He goes and firstly apologizes for um his actions and how they they hurt his formal his former friends and then gives them this crazy story of you got to believe me there's 100 nightmares coming to attack right now please come to the edge of the city to help me and they all kind of look at him and they're like okay i i mean if you're correct then we should probably be there and if you're not correct you know toji and i think this one that says this if he's not correct, the worst that happens is I sit there for two hours and go home. So they they do end up going, and it does end up being quite the dramatic painting sequence. I guess I I don't know if I would ever say that sentence in my life, but there there's a very fulfilling um, action sequence of thirty seven normal painters versus one hundred stable night nightmares. It's pretty cool. That would be a really fun scene to try and portray visually. Yeah. To it, we get a little bit of artwork on it. One of the art pieces in the the book, I think, is from that scene. But adding in the the motion to it, you know, movie climax kind of moment where you've got these painters who are doing battle with nightmares, but they're not like physically doing battle. They're painting as the nightmares are trying to to attack them. That would be really cool to watch. That one, yeah, that one. 
a painting on the floor. I think that's Nakaro defending uh, Akane. And one of these moments, though, that's before the battle, was a really key moment for me in Painter's story. And I think, I think Tojin is going to be my like unsung hero mm. of this book. Yeah, because Tr- Trevor, you mentioned it. Painter goes to his friends to try and convince them to, hey, we need to gather all the painters and go over to the Shroud because we got a hundred nightmares about to come attack our city. Like, something ridiculous. Yeah. He has told them monumental lies in the past. They have no reason to believe him. None whatsoever. But what Hojin says in this scene was really moving for me. He, none of the rest of them want to go. Kane, all the rest of them. No, sorry, you've you've cried wolf too many times. We're not going. Hojin pipes up and says, "Well, what do we have to lose? It's just what's going to happen if he's wrong. We get embarrassed because we asked all of our friends to come for nothing, and we sit out there for two or three hours in the cold. Like that that moment was just heartwarming for me that he." is willing to embarrass himself to go out and ask all of his friends to go do something. He probably thinks 95% likely nothing's about to happen here. And this is going to look, I'm going to look really dumb, but he's willing to do that for his friend who has massively betrayed him in the past. Yeah. And he's like, guys, we can take some embarrassment. It's worth a chance. Like, man, I love that moment from him. It was as, as a reader, right? It was really refreshing to see the logic there of like the painter's plea to to be like, please, please, please help. Like this is going to happen. It's the crazy person who runs in. Right. Um, I think of uh, this is kind of a really funny comparison, but I think of uh, Beauty and the Beast and uh, Bell's father crazy old maurice is what he's labeled because he he tries to tell there's a beast in this castle and all this stuff and and all this all these things you know but uh that's really ridiculous connection but but it's it's neat to see toji just be like hey like i mean what's the worst thing could happen if we go check it out you know so i didn't know normally i feel like you'd be met with like no like i'm sorry like we just can't do anything kind of thing you know and then you're like okay how is the character gonna get someone to go but he was he was pretty willing i didn't know where that was going until you got to crazy (laughs) old maurice but yes i i agree with you that's good it's a good uh reference okay i want to back up and talk to you guys about the mechanics of the story real quick Elliot, last episode, you said at the beginning of the episode, I feel like we've got 90% of this revealed. There's still a little bit that I don't understand. And then you said, I wish Hoyd would just sit us down and explain uh, explain to us what exactly is going on. And then you turn to chapter 39, and that's exactly what happens. Hoyd says to the reader, to the listener of the story, okay, back up. Let me explain everything. What do you guys think of that in in the book? Did did you in, like 
obviously, Elliot, you were asking for that, but now that you actually got exactly that, did you appreciate it or did you? I kind of wish that the info had been given to us in a different way as opposed to just an explanation from Hoyd. Um, I, I don't, I don't mind it, but it's, it was kind of odd for me. Um, and I could, and I could totally see how, especially if you don't like Hoyd, which th there are several people who like, don't really appreciate Hoyd and his humor and his wit. Um, some, something like this right at the climax of the story. And then you get pulled out of it to get explained history. It's kind of an odd mechanic. What did you guys, I want to hear what you guys think of it. I'll talk about the book as a as a whole and how this fits into it next week in our our wrap up episode. But here in this moment, where Boyd does do exactly what I asked him to do, where he says, "You're you're probably a little confused by now. Let me explain this." It it works for me. It does. Okay. I I can totally see how this will throw people. I can totally see how this will rip away the some of the immersion in the fantasy there's going to be people who get to this moment and they say i was in the story i was in the moment and you 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 ripped it away from me in this moment where hoyd breaks the fourth wall and just for many pages explains what's going you know expository i'm dubbing this hoyd splaining <laughs> i i think we just got hoyd splained too like four times in the closing part of this good book yeah but I was already receiving this book as a, you know, rather hung-in-cheek, Groundhog Day style. This is going to be a little bit crazy. We're going to bounce around back and forth, unexpected things are going to happen. It's not Stormlight. It's not Mistborn. I was never trying to make it that. I was not approaching this like an epic fantasy story. Because of what I knew from the very start, the inspirations of this story and how it comes from a very different place. I think Brandon's trying to do something very different. And so to have a very different experience where Boyd pulls me aside out of the story to go explain the mechanics of what's happening, it worked for me. It actually did. Well, I agree. Um, I... I've been debating how much I like being explained to, if that makes sense. Like, it's fun to have the mystery of it. Like, we've had, I feel like, all through Stormlight. It's it's fun to have that mystery and kind of figure it out. But I, I will say, if I didn't have this podcast and I read that series on my own, I would have I would have loved the series, but I would not have really figured out a lot of the inner workings. And so I think as a book to just pick up and read... I think that's a really good thing, and I really like the Hoyd, Hoyd explanations. Okay. I think the, I think the hottest topic for debate, and we should probably save this to get into next week. I think is going to be, does this work, that the Hoyd explaining and the Hoyd narrating style, does this work for a new reader, or does that fact alone make this? An experienced Cosmere reader book only. We don't have to get into that now, but I think that becomes the fascinating question here. Yeah, that is an interesting question. I didn't actually think about that. Um, 
I think it does work for me as well, simply because, uh, Elliot, what you were saying, how the book presents itself. It's not trying to be anything more than, you know, a, a fun fairy tale story told by Hoyt. Um, and the fact that it is that, then Hoyt sitting you down and giving you a little bit of explanation, I I also agree. I didn't. It didn't bother me that much. Um, now, obviously, if this were in another series, if this were in Stormlight or Mistborn, and there was some all-knowing narrator who sat me down in the middle of all the reveals, yes, that of course that wouldn't work. Um, but I think because of how this book is written, um, I think it actually works pretty well. And it, obviously it was an experiment um, from Sanderson. So I, I think it it works fairly well. Obviously I wouldn't want him to do it all the time, um, but for, for what it is, I, th I think he pulled it off. So something I'm curious to know what y'all thought about. So with Painter defending, effectively leading the charge or calling the defense against these nightmares, the the whole crew there, they're painting basically whatever they can, and it sounds like whatever they paint kind of stalls the nightmare for a while. Like they paint a bamboo, right? And it turns into bamboo, and then it's almost like a temporary fix. Like that doesn't really completely do it. Uh, but what Painter discovers, he discovers this as he sees Leun, and he thinks, "I know, I know who this is. I know Leun. I could effectively draw her perfect. I know the personality and all these things." And he draws Leun, and it effectively like saves her. She turns into her original human form. And is Leon like is mm -hmm. is kind of normal, right? And so it kind of has this breakthrough moment of, can we figure out who these people are and and paint them as themselves, kind of thing? Yeah. Um, I'm curious to know what y'all think about it. Like just just as a, I thought it was a pretty neat, um, moment. I guess a, an abstract action scene you know like like it wasn't just swords killing the bad guys it's like we have to paint them as themselves it, it was interesting and then i have um a further thought to add to this as well but i, I want to know what y'all think so i really appreciated the exploration the full exploration of perception and its mechanics and i i feel like this entire book almost one of the inspiration questions for this book was what if you took that fire spread interlude from words of radiance and made the spread the bad guys and you're trying to fight them and how you would fight them and so there's a, there's a whole book explaining like the different things you could do with that magic system of i perceive you as something therefore you are that um because so I, I really did think that it was a good and earned reveal that the way that you fight a stable nightmare is you remind it who it used to be. I think that is a really good mechanic for what's been built um, in the Cosmere so far. I thought that was really good. And you, you Trevor, you almost predicted this. You, you were gosh darn close. Yeah. You predicted that Nikara was going to paint Yumi, right? 
on the mural. She does. Which she does. Which, okay. And, and real quick there, I was incorrect on the inspiration of why, but I'm glad I was. Yeah. Why he does it is better. But we'll get there. Yep. Go ahead. Yep. Yeah, you just like my prediction earlier where I was like right on the right track, but then it ended up not being quite the way I was thinking about it. Same thing here. You thought a picture of Yumi would remind them who they are. No, Nicaro takes it one step farther and he paints them. Yeah. So he he turns them into people, which he flashes back to like the very beginning of the book where we're told that painters are are taught not to paint nightmares into people. Because if you paint a nightmare into a person, it can still come attack you. Well, the added element here is what you're talking about. It's that that memory aspect of it. That I'm going to paint you as who you truly were. And then they have this rush of memories and, and kind of realize what's going on there. Because just like we saw before with Lee Yoon, the nightmares don't really quite understand what's going on when they're in nightmare form. They're just kind of, they're just hungry. They want experience. They want that. They know they're missing something and they're trying to find it. But when painter is able to perceive them in their true forms, it kind of brings it all together. But then, of course, it turns sad as they all like melt away later. Yes, I do. I do think that's a little bit interesting. That it feels like Nicaro has saved them from their nightmare selves, and then they die. 20, 20 minutes later uh, as Yumi completes her mission. So, Right. Which is sad, but then on, on the flip side, it's like they, they die, but they, they really died 1,700 years ago. Right. They've, they've been undead, if you will, for a long time. It's almost like that release of the undead spirit moment instead of a, you know, death of a physical being. Yeah. There's there's a quote in amongst these chapters, which I want to hit real quick before we, we move on. Yumi, Yumi escapes from the, the engineer, the scholar guys. She does it by flying on a tree, which is kind of an interesting sequence. But when she she lands, they, they attack her. I think there's yeah. four of them, right? And they're in full-on nightmare form, and they just, you know, stab her with their her their claws and they're gonna you know suck all the spirit life out of her and yumi has this moment that the quote is i am the one that nightmares fear and it's it's referencing back to something that design told her design was like reading her spirit web and was like oh my gosh everybody should be terrified of you and yumi remembers that and she's like oh they i i shouldn't fear them they should fear me and in that moment, she just like reverses the sucking out of her spirit and like destroys them instead of them destroying her. Yeah. That was a cool like realizing and accomplishing her true power moment. Yeah. I think the chapter 41, the last quote unquote chapter of the book, is our sad ending. And we, we're in Yumi's head um, as she's completing her masterpiece stacking. She's draining the machine of its investiture and of its spirits. But as she does it, she realizes that the shroud will dissolve 
and all of the projections of the shroud, the nightmares, even the Yokihijo, um, all of that will dissolve. So, including me. But she does it anyway, um, because she knows that she needs to free these spirits from their trapped state. Um, the other Yoki, she, she mentions that she has a connection with the other Yokihijo as she's doing it, and they are, you know, grateful to her for what she's doing. Um, but at the end of the chapter, uh, Yumi and Nikaro have a connection and they talk with each other. They, they have a, they have a conversation about, you know, not all happy or not all stories can have happy endings. And I'm sorry for this one. Um, and the, the TV show that is referenced earlier in the, in the book is, and I think we we called this as well. It is a direct reference to the story that we're reading. Um, what I didn't catch was the surprise bonus episode that is in the TV show. So it's it's it the TV show deliberately has like the long credits. It's supposed to show its audience that this is the last episode. It's a sad ending. They're they're not going to be together. And then there's a surprise bonus episode that Yumi's told about later. And that and we have two epilogues, which resolves our sad ending into a happy ending. Um, which I'll, I'll be honest, Brandon, you got me. I I I I shed some tears in forty one, and then at the beginning of the epilogue, boy, it's like all dramatic and saying, "Oh, I'm sorry, I had to bring this sad ending to you, but that's just how it is." And uh, Nicaro's over there painting something, but don't bother him because we're we're all just so sad and the uh, sad endings and stories. And then he just kind of offhandedly says, "And Yumi comes back from the dead." And then there's a second epilogue after that. So, I I appreciate this as a story mechanic because I don't know if I've ever been faked out in a book like that. I thought I thought that was pretty funny. So, I I agree with you, Trevor. It was a huge fake out. I will say, I I was actually of the camp that like I wasn't going to believe that she was completely dead until like the end. The like yeah, the book was over. Like the postscript. Yeah, whatever. Like like as long as there is still text that is tied to this story, I am still holding on that they're going to live together happily ever after. Um, I was of that, I think I am, was getting a little meta with that, a little outside of the actual story itself. I had mentioned this before, that it is uh, Brandon Sanderson's wife's favorite of the secret projects, and from what I understand, she likes a happy ending. So I was like, surely not. Surely she didn't choose the tragic ending. The, the, the like, you know, the, yeah the bittersweet ending, you know? And so I was still holding out hope and I'm glad I did because if it, well, I'm, it made me nervous though, because for a bit there I, I was doubting, I was doubting that. And I would have been kind of sad if, if it was a very sad ending. I, I didn't fall for it. And I'm not just saying this because I've read the, the final ending, but there were, there were two reasons that I was, a hundred percent sure that Yumi was coming back even after the final chapter. And I was ready to potentially 
heavily trash this novel if it did she did <laughs> not come back. And the first reason was kind of what you're talking about, Paul. I, I was thinking about the book in the big picture. Just the the tone of this book, the premise of this book, the lighthearted nature of so many of the elements of this book, to have a truly sad ending would have just been that would not have sat right with me. Mm-hmm. That would that would not have felt appropriate for the story that we just read. I, I would have been furious. I, I have nothing against a sad ending. I think that tragic stories are perfectly but like like you, me, and Painter talk about. There are reasons to have sad stories. That's there's sad things in life. That's perfectly applicable. The way this story was presented to us was not a tragedy. Right. And if it ended that way, I would have been mad. So even after chapter 41 was done, for that reason alone, I was like, no, that's not possible. Two, I was all in 100% on my prediction of the TV show in the book was the allegory for the, the story that we were reading and that that story got the surprise happy ending. So I was supremely confident that in the last six pages of the book, we were going to get a surprise happy ending and did happen. I, I feel like that was at least a little bit telegraphed by the the author. And I do, I, I do think that it's fairly predictable. I just forgot. I, I didn't remember that there was a <laughs> surprise bonus episode in the, because it, it's kind of just mentioned offhand by Izzy, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and it's, it's in a scene where there's a lot of other important things going on and it's just this off two sentence dial or two sentence dialogue. So um, I just didn't remember as I was reading it. I was like, no way we're getting a sad ending. Um, and, and it's also, we're, we're getting all this in the midst of a pretty exciting Sanderlanch. I mean, yeah. things moved fast in those last few chapters. It was very, you know, page turny. And so I, I, I bet a lot of people, bought into that just in the the emotion of you know flipping through pages and reading fast but then of course you find out just a couple pages later that you get your surprise happy ending so i was right but for the wrong reasons nicaro paints yumi on his mural and i will show the artwork now because it's in the book the back cover of the book is this painting that he puts on uh, of Yumi sitting in the tree. And it's, it's breathtaking. Um, and the way that the painting comes about is better than my prediction. He, I predicted that he would paint Yumi and all the nightmares would come to the town, recognizing Yumi, remembering solving the problem. Instead, the nightmares were already evaporated with the rest of the shroud at this point. The the story is over, as Hoyd says. The like we are all mourning, you know, the loss of Yumi and Nicaro's over there refusing to have an end to this. But Nicaro, as a tribute to Yumi and his love for her, goes and paints this picture of Yumi on his mural for himself. He doesn't need an audience. He does it for himself. And that is a great period to Nicaro's story of, yes, he is a real painter because, a real artist, 
was the was the discussion i don't know a couple episodes ago because he can create without an audience he does it for himself because he has the inclination to create and as yumi is departing the world she comes and touches his shoulder um um witnessing the um witnessing the mural with him and that's when they have the and that's when Nicaro pleads with her to to stay and have a, a happy life that she deserves happiness and can choose love. Um, great ending to a to a great story, and I and I love the inspiration for Nicaro's mural is for himself, not for anybody else. I got a little I got a little emotional in this scene. Because of the fact that you're in the epilogue, right? So there's only six or so pages left in the entire book. And the artwork that we're, we're looking at here is, is on the inside of the back cover. So you can you can kind of lift the pages up and read this whole sequence while looking at this exact piece of art. And you can you can read about the different elements of it that Nicaro is just pouring himself into while you look at it like that that combination of reading the story while looking at the visual piece that's being described to you in that exact scene was that was was that was special for me this is this is a cool experience that i don't think i've ever had in a book before i've i've seen many many artist depictions of scenes in a book i don't think i've ever read a scene for the first time while having that exact, you know, what's being described in that scene in front of me in my hand in the same book. That is the, the fact that the art in this book is so intertwined with the story and so a part of the experience is just really, really cool. Yeah, I agree. I uh, Another question I have for Dragonsteel is how many of these art pieces were assigned and how much how many did Alaya Chen just decide to make because because there's what 30 35 art pieces in the whole book there's there's several full page full color or at least dual color pictures there's and then several pencil sketches there's several monochrome pictures like the one we're looking at here um uh, without a doubt, I think this is the best visual art we've ever seen in a Cosmere book. I don't, I don't think that's hard to say at all. It is fantastic. I, I agree with that. I, I, funny enough, I just got a, a physical copy of the book recently, and I mean, I, I'm the book itself and all the little details inside of it are just immaculate and and the art is so well done. Yeah. So I I I agree with you on that Trevor. It's just absolutely fantastic. What did you guys think of the actual epilogue? Another epilogue where we do get several loose ends tied up in Hoyd's own words. He says to the listener that he that we want loose ends tied up. So Hoyd gets unfrozen. Design and Hoyd take off in a spaceship. Yumi and Painter get 
inherited the noodle shop, which I think is funny because it's been well established in this book that neither of them have any cooking skill at all, um, which I, I, I just enjoyed that because design leaves it to Yumi and Painter and neither of them can cook at all. And we we get a couple name drops at the end of the book, which is an interesting place to put them. I thought it was good. I thought it wrapped it up in, in some classic Hoyd fashion with some funny moments in a silly kissing scene and the uh and then yes, a few good Cosmere name drops. Of course we get the name of the planet, which I think we mentioned already, which was I, I laughed a little bit that we it took us all the way down to like three pages before the the end of the book to get the name of the actual planet that yeah. we're that we're on. And I think because of that, I'm going to have a really hard time remembering it. But so I'll have to, I'm going to have to write it down. Kamashi, I'm assuming, is how we might say that. Yep. What about the other planet? Yeah, I was curious about that. So he references another planet, which is spelled a little bit strange in the book, which I'm assuming you might say this Utah or something like that. It's, yeah, I think it's Utol or Utol. Okay. It just has the the first two letters of the word are capitalized, and it's 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 clearly not a typo because it happens multiple times. It it seems to be a, I don't know, referencing something. the the way The way it's kind of referenced in the story here, clearly this is something that I'm supposed to know what this is, and this is a you know potentially a big reveal or maybe just a small reveal or clearly a, a nod and a wink to oh yeah, and by the way, this planet is next to Utah. Wink, wink. Like, hmm, I don't know what that is, but I'm sure this is a, a pretty big Raffo moment for, for me, at least, that it's got to be in one of the books. Paul, do you know what it is? We haven't read I was I was thinking confident. the same thing, Elliot. I was like, maybe this is like something we just haven't read yet. Maybe this is Elantris. Maybe this is Miss Bornera 2 somehow. Maybe this is... A different secret project. I I don't know what Utah is. There was at least one other direct Elantris reference in the story. I'm guessing. I'm sure there were more that I didn't get because I haven't read that book. But there's one I. There was a direct reference to Elantris. I think I'm guessing this is another that he's he's tying into that story. But I have nothing to base that on. It's a complete guess. I do think it's interesting that. I mean, we we haven't read Elantris, but there's no like direct foreshadowing in Elantris because it's the first book and he didn't really intend or know that he was going to put it in the quote unquote Cosmere that wasn't even a thing back then. So he's doing a lot of retroactive references to Elantris. Is this one of them? I don't know. Anything else from the epilogue? Oh, yeah. Uh, I have something else. Um, I was going to say. Or Hoyd and Design reference. You remember that time I lost my memories? And Design says, oh yeah, that was hilarious. And Hoyd comes back with, no, it wasn't. It was horrible. That's, uh, I wouldn't call it spoiler territory, but if you know what we're talking about, that's uh, quite the reference. <laughs> That is quite the reference. That's what I was I was curious to talk with y'all about, maybe more than anything else, because this is more 
what's going on in the Cosmere question. He mentions these protection protocols or some kind of like innate protection spell thing was like triggered Mm -hmm. that I'm guessing he implemented after he had his memory wiped. But I'm like, is there something that he had before the the what we have read or what? I'm curious to know what y'all think. I'm yeah, I also had the same question. Does this imply that A, he put this in place after Rhythm of War, or B, that he already has this in Rhythm of War and what big spoilers for Rhythm of War for and what Todium thought he accomplished he did not the way i took this was the the former Mm -hmm. in that he did not have protections in place for that event and later put them in so that investiture methods could not affect him in some way it's it's a little confusing the way it's kind of explained. He basically says, I'd landed on the planet, and that big old machine that is sucking investiture out of spirits started sucking investiture out of me, and my defense mechanism kicked in and was like, uh-uh, don't do that. Statue. Which is kind of funny, and I think design mocks him for it a little bit, and that he has to d- defend himself and say, well, it wasn't supposed to happen like that. I didn't intentionally turn myself into a statue, but at least I protected myself from the machine, I guess. Yeah, I was taking it about the same way, Elliot. It is it is funny, and my understanding is that is how it works pretty much. Is It's some kind of innate thing that it's like, I guess if his soul or investiture or whatever starts to get siphoned or altered or something like that, his body just... I, guess he just becomes a statue for how who knows how long um roughly the length of this story i guess um or longer than this story you know i did feel a little bit encouraged by this though when when we left rhythm of war i at least was pretty terrified that hoyd you know kind of untouchable hoyd just had his memory stolen. And we we talked about this, you know, quite a bit of, oh my gosh, how much did he lose? Is this going to be terrible? Does Todium have all his memories and now he's not going to be able to do anything? This at least tells me at some point in the future, not only has Hoyd, he's semi-fine, he also knows that in the past his memories were stolen and seems somewhat okay with that scenario. Yeah. And so... He references it fairly casually, not, which, is, exactly. which is interesting. Yeah. It's not like those memories are stolen and he never, ever gets them back in the future. And whether he has them back or not, he at least knows in this moment that that has happened in the past, which that alone makes me feel slightly better about where we left Hoyt at the end of Rhythm of War. I I agree. I know I had mentioned this before, and I still don't believe it. It's more so wishful thinking of maybe, maybe Hoyt, Loki was the one who pulled a fast one on on odium at that at that time there there's not much grounding for that however well one this does confirm i think that his memory was stolen 
but I mean, we'll just have to wait for a while to know what actually happens after the fact there. We don't know. Like I said, I could, I could believe it if there, he already had some defense tool in place at that time, or if that came after the fact. So I'll be curious to see how that, how that turns up, but that was actually really neat. I think that was a fun little nod of getting to see, you know, how getting some acknowledgement on that, I guess. Um, you know, since I have to wait another year for for book five anyways, so. Elliot, you have the postscript in the outline. Would you like to talk about something that is not in the book, for the record, is postscript? It is, it is after the story, but it is still in the book. When I pick up the book, that in my hands is the postscript. That's how I think about it, but the... I, I chuckled a little bit actually by the fact that there was a postscript. It's almost as, you know, Hoyd, our narrator, took a moment to pull us aside as readers and explain. Brandon felt like he had to do the same thing. At the end of the book, he said, you know, he he put some of his thoughts into the end to talk about his inspirations and reasons for writing, and then explicitly says in the postscript that this is his favorite secret project, which is that like you know having a favorite child? I feel like that's not allowed. <laughs> Are you allowed to have a favorite book when you're an author? I mean, uh, I've heard him been asked what what book are you most proud of, and he has the cop out answer of whichever one I'm working on currently. And I'm like, mm. that's such a non answer. I hate that. But this mm -hmm. is a pretty definitive. This is my favorite secret project. So yeah, yeah, it was very clear. There's a few other bits in the postscript that I'll, I'll tie into some of my book as a whole thoughts we talk about next week. But yeah, I, I just thought it was interesting that there even was a postscript. I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on it. I didn't have anything major. I did, I did like that he mentions it's his favorite. We were talking about that, you know. But it is, it is kind of refreshing, I guess, to see that that direct answer. I'm, I mean, I honestly feel kind of lucky. I don't remember the initial plan or thought process that Trevor had for choosing this secret project and not the others, but I'm glad you did. I mean, I feel like this is a really cool one. I haven't read the others to compare, but if it's Brandon Sanderson's favorite of them, then I feel like that's pretty neat, you know? I don't... I also don't remember why I decided on Secret Project 3 there there was reasoning behind it but I also kind of felt I remember feeling like this one specifically would be good to read right when it came out for you guys for whatever reason I don't I don't remember why but I, I did have that specific thought that this one would be special to read on release oh, I pushed for it just because I was really itching to cover a book on the podcast like this as it released, you know, immediately upon release, because everything we'd read up till now have been published at least a year before we covered it, most of them many years before we covered it. And so to do one fresh right as it gets in the hands of the readers so that we could interact with all of you guys out there, our, our, our listeners and folks, you know, that jump into our, our Discord, that experience has been a ton of fun, and I'm glad we did. Anything else for this episode, gentlemen? All I got. No further questions, Your Honor. All right. Let's talk about the whole book 
next week. Until then, thanks for joining me, Elliot and Paul. See you on the flip side. Bye.